0: or whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Thanks, Tim. Good morning. I want everybody... You can be seated. Thanks. Or you could stand for 35 minutes. That's fun, too. I do it. You should do it also. That's my... That's what I think. Uh, do me a favor. If you have a physical Bible with you, can you grab it and open it to Genesis 1? And if you don't have a physical Bible with you, there's probably one under the seat in front of you, so I'd like you to reach under there and grab that as well. I'm, I'm going to do it as well, even though I hold a microphone in one hand. So what I want you to do is grab, turn over to Genesis 1, right? Put your finger there, and then turn all the way to the end of the Old Testament, the prophet Malachi. If you get to Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, you've gone too far, and hold it between your thumb and forefinger like, I'm just going to fudge it because I can't find it when I don't have two hands, like this, right? Everybody do that with me. Do you see how much of your Bible you're holding? Would you say that's more than half of your Bible? Correct, correct. The Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, functions as approximately... More than half of our Bibles. I wish I had that percentage down here, but I don't. so, so I'm just going to say more than half. And the reality of the Old Testament, that 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 book that you're, that number of books that you're holding between your thumb and forefinger, you can stop now if you're still doing that. I don't make you do that the entire 35 minutes. but uh, but the reality of that book is that many of us. Many people in the who many people who call themselves Christ followers, many people who are Christians, don't always have a great handle on that part of our Bible, do we? Have you ever wondered, why is that there? Because when I read it, there are things in there that I don't necessarily resonate with, right? Sacrifices and the like. It doesn't always make a lot of sense to us, does it? if we're being honest with ourselves. I think when we look at the New Testament in general, it makes sense, right? Because we have the Gospels, which is the story of Jesus's life. And then we have, uh, then we have the book of Acts, which is the story of the, Jesus's followers and kind of how they got this whole thing started. And then finally, we have the epistles, right? These letters that were written from Christian leaders to churches in the first century. Those make sense to us, right? We can kind of get our heads around what's happening there. But when we read the Old Testament... It's a little bit more difficult, isn't it? It's a little bit more of a stretch. Why does this this set of books, what is often referred to by Jesus as the Law and the Prophets, which constitutes the Torah or the Book of Moses, often called the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible, and within those first five books of the Bible, we see all of the Law, which is why it's often called the Law. There are 613 laws in the law, which uh, is comprised of 365 negative commands or laws. These are laws that you are supposed, about things that you are not supposed to do. And then there are 248 positive laws or things that one is supposed to do. So we have the law, we have the book of Moses, we have the Pentateuch, and then after that we have the prophets. The prophets, all of these books And there are some other ones thrown in there. There are historical books and the Psalms and the Proverbs. But in general, what we talk about as the Old Testament, Jesus refers to as the law and the prophets. And the issue we run into, I think, is that very often we just don't know what to do with it, do we? We don't know what to do with it. Because we run into passages like this. And I put this in the King James because it was funnier to me. I think we have it on the screen. I'm going to read it. Do we? Yeah, there it is. All right. Uh, This is the Bible, so you can't get mad at me for reading it. When men strive against one another, uh, when men strive together, one with another, excuse me, and the wife of one draweth near to deliver her husband out of the hand of him that smiteth him, and putteth forth her hand, and taketh him by the secrets. (laughs) My wife's the only one that gets it. Uh, (laughs) Then thou shalt cut off her hand and thine eye shall not pity her. Do you guys know what that is happening here? The King James is very confusing, isn't it? I put it in the King James because I thought it was hilarious, but apparently no one else does. Um, <laughs> what's happening here is that somebody has taught this guy who's getting beat up by another guy, somebody's taught his wife in one of those modern-day self-defense courses, and she knows directly where to go when in self-defense. Are you catching my drift here? Right? Are we following? She's, ta- she's taking her aggressive aggression out on his undercarriage. Um, so we've gone that direction this morning. Uh, it's in the Bible, though. But the command is that if she does this, she's supposed to get her hand cut off, right? That's what, that's what the punishment for doing this is. That's a, stri- that's a strange commandment, right? Well, can we all agree on that? It's, it's slightly strange. Here's a couple more. Uh, in, in if you read Leviticus 19, there's this whole list of them. Some of them make a lot of sense to us and some of them might not. In Leviticus 19.19, we see that uh, we're not to wear uh, clothing that has mixed fabrics in it. So you can't wear a wool polyester blend. That's unacceptable, right? And then in Leviticus 19.28, we have laws about not wearing tattoos. They're not getting tattoos, my son wears tattoos because we put fake ones on him, but uh, not, not receiving a tattoo on your skin. And there are other uh, passages that are just as confusing, right? There are other passages that are just as hard for us to get our mind around. So what are we supposed to do with this? What are we supposed to do with this? How are we supposed to listen, hear these words, and apply them to our lives if that's what we're supposed to do with the Bible, right? How do we do that? Because we have, these, we have these laws and these passages that are a little, very obviously very kind of hard to get our minds around, so then we have laws like, in the, like the Ten Commandments, and I think we would all agree that the Ten Commandments in general are things that we should do, are rules, in a sense, that we should follow, right? So, so what do we do with this? How do, we, how do we handle this book called the Old Testament? What are Christians to do? It's pretty confusing, and most Christians, I think, don't know the answer to this, if I'm being honest with you. If you're having a conversation with someone and they ask you this question, do you believe in the Bible? Do you believe the Bible? Most Christians would say, yes, I believe the Bible, right? And then the same breath, then they might ask, then why are you wearing a shirt with mixed fabrics? And why are we having this conversation at Joe's Crab Shack, right? These, uh, you're not supposed to eat shellfish in the Old Testament either. It doesn't affect us in Iowa because we don't have good shellfish here, um, but you can't, have, uh, you can't have that shrimp cocktail at Christmas. So, uh, if, and then they ask you that question, and most Christians, I would argue, just kind of look with a blank stare, right? I don't know why I'm not supposed to do that, right? I, I really don't. When we read the New Testament— And understand it, it makes sense. But when we carry that over into the Old Testament, it doesn't make as much sense to us, does it? It's just a little bit confusing. And most of us, if we're we're being honest, definitely don't know how to distinguish between the laws in the Old Testament that we should import into our lives and those that we should not, right? It's a difficult thing. It's actually quite difficult, and most Christians just kind of ignore it. We put it off. We don't talk about it, do we? but it's really, really important. And I think this is why, in our passage from the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus actually addresses this very issue today. It might not look like it on the surface, but this is what Jesus is talking about. What ought we to do with the Old Testament? How ought we to handle this particular set of books? Because it was becoming an issue. Jesus is laying down in the Sermon on the Mount what faith and life should look like now that the kingdom of God is on the scene, now that Jesus has arrived and has begin, as the Messiah and has begun to usher in this thing he calls the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Now, part of the reason that this uh, text appears right here is because Jesus is, there is some suspicion, I think, that Jesus is going to do away with the Old Testament. Or, at least, that he, in his teaching and in the way he's conducting himself, he is undercutting the law of Moses. That this this big Mosaic law that everyone in the Jewish world, at this time and in, in our time in many cases, have built the, the entire structure of their lives on, that Jesus was, in some way, with his work and in, in his ministry, undercutting the law of Moses. There were questions here, and Jesus was accused of this. In Matthew 12, the, the Pharisees come and accuse uh, Jesus' disciples of not observing the Sabbath, which was one of the central, the primary rules that one had to follow if one was a Jewish person. And Jesus doesn't say they weren't breaking the Sabbath. He says, he defends them, right, and says the Sabbath was made for man, and didn't, didn't David break the Sabbath just like this? So clearly there were some issues that were beginning to arise, and Jesus is going to clear this up. The question we have to ask ourselves, and the question that Jesus is answering, is: Do we have to shelve the entire Hebrew Scriptures? Should we just scrap them and start over afresh and anew with Jesus's teaching? Or is there something vital there? Is there something important? Is there something that we shouldn't scrap? Is there something we shouldn't just... You know, I didn't ask you to then take after you put the Old Testament between your thumb and forefinger. I didn't ask you to then take scissors and cut it out of your Bible. Right? Right. Why is it that it's vital? Why is it that it is important? And what? is it that Jesus is saying to his disciples and to these Jewish people that are gathered at the bottom of this hill, this mount in which he is giving this message, what is it exactly that he's saying, and how should we read this book called the Old Testament? So that's what we're doing today. Sound fun? Maybe it's a little bit like a college course, but I think it's vitally important. So if you have your Bibles, you can keep them open uh, to Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. It's in it And uh, Tim already read it, but I just want to reread it for us so we hear it uh, again. Beginning of verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, right? Jesus says, don't think I've come to do that. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of the pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Notice here he says, do not think I have come to abolish the law, right? Because apparently it was possible if you were within Jesus's earshot that you thought maybe these are going away, right? That He's addressing this issue, but rather Jesus affirms, yes, In fact, not the smallest letter, not a single iota, not a single comma, period, semicolon, whatever other type of punctuation mark you can think of in your head, is going to go away. They are all valuable, right? From this law, I value it highly. And he goes on here in verse 19 and says, therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commandments, anyone who takes one of these commandments that doesn't make sense to them and sets it aside or or cuts it out of their Bible... Uh, is least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever practices and teaches these commandments will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says that in the new kingdom that God is building, that is, um, that is kind of infer- unfurling in his presence, that true fidelity to that kingdom looks like taking these scriptures seriously, right? And that being great in the kingdom of God, you see these scriptures for what they are, as valuable, as valuable, and inspired God's special communication to his people. That you don't see those 613 commandments as simply things that need to be cast off, but you see them as valuable and good and and having great import into our lives. Now, this is interesting, isn't it? Because how can this be true? How can it be true? Because Jesus and Jesus's followers after him go about not doing many of those things, Many of those commandments, many of those 613 commandments, he, Christians don't do anymore. I, I, would, I would venture a guess that every single one of you sitting in your seat right now are in violation of at least one of these commandments. In fact, I would guarantee it, right? So, so this doesn't make sense that Jesus is saying this, does it? If, if, if on the surface that's actually what he means, right? But is, is Jesus reorienting us around some other idea, or is he saying, let's just continue sacrifice and, and live into the Jewish sacrificial system? What exactly is Jesus saying? Well, I think the key to understanding what Jesus is saying here is found in verse 20, is found at the end, when he says something that is a fairly popular saying in the Sermon on the Mount, but is very often misunderstood because we don't understand what it is Jesus is getting at with the two verses above it. So in verse 20, Jesus says, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You will not enter the kingdom of heaven unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees. So, okay, great. And that's the end of what Jesus has to say about this. It's a little confusing, isn't it? In order to understand what he's saying here, I think we do need to step one quick second back into the first century world and learn a little about the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And what you, for our purposes this morning, what we need to understand is that ritual purity, right? Purity, religious purity, ritual purity, and freedom from defilement was the thing that was most important to the Pharisees and the, the teachers of the law. They wanted to follow the law perfectly this was their point this was their goal this was their end and actually that they believed that by remaining ritually pure by remaining faithful to the law of moses by following all 613 commandments perfectly what they were doing was inviting god's favor on them and inviting god's favor on their nation and the reason this was important in the first century is that the nation of israel was not sovereign they were occupied by the romans and so the Pharisees and the teachers of the law felt that the reason they were occupied by the Romans, and there is a lot of good evidence in the, in the Old Testament to support this, part of the reason that they were occupied was because they were not faithful to the law, that they had strayed from God, and thus God had allowed foreigners to come in and conquer them. And so they believed that if they were going to be delivered from that situation, what they needed to be was the best law followers possible, right? This is, so there was, all kind, there was all kinds of political and religious stuff mixed up in this, and they took it very, very seriously. They took it very seriously. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were nearly perfect. They loved keeping the law. They understood the law. They taught the law to others, and they kept everybody else in line because they wanted to maintain the status, they wanted to maintain a, a nation, a group of people who were faithful to the law of Moses, who observed the, the Mosaic law in such a way as that God would shine his face upon them. It was very important to them. They were very concerned with about, about it. And so, for Jesus to say to his audience that their righteousness, which they, when they heard that word, they understood it within the context of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, when he said that their righteousness must surpass that of the Pharisees and the teachers, that sounded simply impossible. And actually, if you understood it that way, it was impossible. And that's what Jesus wanted to communicate. He wanted to communicate that it is impossible. Jesus' point is that it is impossible to surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees if you measure righteousness as ritual purity and Torah observance. This is what he wanted to communicate, that it is, in fact, impossible. And Jesus is challenging a certain idea with this statement. Jesus is challenging the standard definition of what righteousness is. Does that make sense? That Jesus is redefining this idea of righteousness. For Jesus righteousness is not about, and he will will expound on this as he goes into the Sermon on the Mount, righteousness is not about following the law. Rather, it is about the condition of one's heart. But notice that Jesus does not think that this is a departure from the Hebrew Scriptures, does he? He doesn't think that in order to get to this heart thing, what you need to do is just kick out all 600 and 13 laws and get rid of everything, and then we'll just start over afresh and anew with my teachings. No, this is not what he thinks. He is saying that now, with his teachings on the Sermon on the Mount, he is going to, in some real sense, fulfill the true meaning, the true heart of the Hebrew scriptures, that he is getting at the meaning behind the ritual and the legal codes, and he is on really firm, I would argue, biblical grounds here. He's not just kicking out the whole Old Testament. Actually, for Jesus, the whole of the Old Testament, the whole of the law and the prophets uh, provide these little echoes, these little hints that the law was not actually what God cared about most at all. In some sense, Jesus is very much within 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 the line or within the history of the way in which the prophets talked about the law. Uh, for instance, uh, David in Psalm 51, uh, 5116 says this, You do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would bring it. So David says to God in this psalm, you don't want sacrifice. What you want is a heart that is pure and after you. The prophet Hosea in uh, Hosea 6 chapter, uh, verse 6, says this, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice. An acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. You see, there's this there's this kind of subtle thread going through that the thing that God is most not most concerned with is the ritual, right? Is the is these kind of hard to understand laws, but is rather the heart condition. If you read the prophet Amos uh, verses or chapters twenty one through twenty four, you'll get a you'll get a picture of this as well. The prophet accuses leaders, Jewish leaders, in that book, of Uh, Hiding behind ritual and sacrifice and law, and neglecting the uh, neglecting to show mercy and to show uh, favor to the poor or to the oppressed people in Israel. For Jesus, like the Old Testament prophets, righteousness is is consists of deeds of love, mercy, and justice, oftentimes done towards or on behalf of those who are most vulnerable in society. And when you understand this, you understand why Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount with, blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who are oppressed, right, by the world. Jesus sees the law as completely authoritative and valuable because it is ultimately about the human heart, but he jettisons the ritual, doesn't he? He, in some sense, he jettisons the ritual, he gets rid of the pomp and circumstance, but more than anything, he does not allow the Pharisees, the scribes, or the prophets to hide behind their religion anymore. He does not create this religious edifice behind which the prophets of the law and the Pharisees can hide. And Jesus is really, if if you're familiar with the Gospels, Jesus is really aggressive about this. At one point, he calls the, he, at this, getting at this exact same idea, Jesus calls the Pharisees whitewashed tombs, right? There's another passage where uh, Jesus is uh, really getting on people because of this law that's called Corbin. Have you ever heard of the law of Corbin? So the, there's a, one of the laws in that 613 is all about how uh, children are to support their parents financially, right? And there was, uh, that, that children are to take care of their family, that family are to provide for the elderly. This was a law in the book of Moses. But there's this law of Corbin that said you could kind of store your money away, you could give your gifts to the temple, and then you wouldn't have, and then you wouldn't have, then you could say, oh, I guess I don't have any money to support my parents. It was like a, some tax shelter for your money that you kept in the temple so that you didn't have to take care of your parents. And Jesus, or this, is what ha, this is what's happening here. And so, and Jesus comes down on the Pharisees and says, you don't even understand the heart behind this law. You say Corban and hide your money away and don't take care of your parents. And you say you're following the law, but you don't understand the heart behind it. Do you see? He doesn't want people to hide behind the law anymore. He wants to see people's heart. He wants to capture the heart of people, so that makes sense, I think, right? But what what then do we do with all of the with all of the passages about not getting tattoos and men uh, trimming the edges of their beard and letting their hair grow kind of long on the sides, right? Like you see, certain Hasidic Jewish men have their hair that way, right? What what do we do with all of those things? How how do we deal with the prohibitions? against things that we are all doing on a daily basis, right? That's a good question, I think. So I have two answers to that. First, we need to let the New Testament interpret the Old Testament, right? Meaning that the New Testament is the lens through which Christians uh, read the Old Testament, and if a law is no longer followed in the New Testament, you are on safe footing in not following it yourself. Does this make sense? Now, this was a big issue, and they wrestled over this a lot in the New Testament. They, were, they, they had, told, if you read the book of Acts, they had like councils, and all the leaders of the church were getting together and determining like, okay, what do we follow, and what do we not follow? How do we figure this out? And the church kind of through, uh, through the years figured it out, right? They, they, they figured out how to get free of the law, and in general, those things in which that Christians don't do today are what the church has kind of decided we don't need to abide by. So you can allow the New Testament to interpret the Old Testament, and that helps. But secondly, and I think most importantly, we need to wrestle with uh, and see the Old Testament as a prophetic witness to us in our day. As a prophetic witness to us in our day. Now, this is this word prophetic is a little interesting, isn't it? It's a little hard to understand, because we, when we read laws in the Old Testament, some of them are so obscure that we do not even understand how they could ever apply to us. They come from this culture that was, in some cases, like 5,000 years ago. They didn't have anything we have. They didn't, they didn't understand the world the way we understand it. How in the world can we see these, uh, these, this law and these rules and see that we could learn or glean anything from them, right? It's a, it's a good question. But what we need to understand there is that there, there is a kind of prophetic or um, uh, foreshadowing of the significance of what Jesus was coming to do, that, that, the, that the heart behind some of these passages is real and true, and that we should see them for what they are. We should see them for what they are. And though we might not actually follow them, uh, we might mix uh, milk in with our meat, which is delicious and you should all do. We, we can get to the heart of why maybe that, uh, why maybe that prohibition was there in the first place. And what God, but, but the thing that we can understand the most, I think, when we look at these passages, is what God wants from us is not this kind of external rule keeping, right? But what God actually wants from us is a transformed heart that loves justice and mercy, and we need to understand that for Jesus, the practice of our faith, uh, the living out of our faith, is about this vital connection to God in Christ, centrally, and that in our hearts, our, heart, our action should flow out of a heart that is vitally connected to God, that, that, understands, the, uh, that understands the heart behind the, uh, the rules. Does this make sense? But doesn't see the rules as an end in themselves. In the religious system of Jesus's day, actions and attitudes were not as important. Uh, were not as important as following the law. And Jesus, with this passage, flips that on its head. That actions and attitudes are absolutely what's most important, and our religious obligation or uh, ritual purity or all, and all of the trappings that went along with observing the law of Moses were secondary. Jesus throws cold water on the whole kind of. Uh, temple religious system. And we see this even more when Jesus uh, goes into the temple and he drives out the money changers. And, he, uh, and after his death, uh, we have an example of the, the, a veil in the temple being torn into, symbolically stating that Jesus is the new temple. He represents this communication for us between God and man. Instead, Jesus wants us all to hear from the heart of God. And this is what he does on the Sermon on the Mount. He communicates the heart of God. He communicates the heart behind all 613 of these rules and regulations, and he gets right to the center of it. He communicates why it's important. And so when we read the Old Testament, we need to read it as a kind of echo, right? A kind of foreshadowing of the truths that Jesus is going to unfold for us in full, and so when we read a passage in the Old Testament and it doesn't make sense to us, we don't actually have to get that nervous about it. You don't really have to get that worried uh, that, you're, that you're wearing a, a linen blend this morning, right? You don't have to go, you don't have to go uh, sew your own clothes, thank God. Um, but you do have to understand that, that though that passage might seem a little obscure, it might seem a little hard to get our brains around, that Jesus un- unfolds for us the significance of the law fully. He tells us exactly what it's about. Does this make sense? And so when we, when we hold the New Testament, we hold it as the words of God. We hold it as God's special communication to us. We hold it as authoritative, but we hold it that way in the light of who Jesus is, right? We read it in the light of who Jesus is. We read it in the light of the New Testament. And if we do it that way, we read it correctly. But if we read it on its own account, with, with, not through the lens of Jesus, we will inevitably get caught up in all kinds of weird stuff. Does this make sense? All right. So, how should this affect my life is the next question, right? Okay, Nick, thank you for telling me about the Old Testament and why it's there, but how does this affect my life? How, how should this affect the way that I live as a Christian person, right? This is the question. Well, I think there's a few things we can take away from this, and the first is that we should cultivate a spirituality where the Pharisees don't win. We should cultivate a spirituality where the Pharisees don't win. Now, what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is that as Christian people, we need to cultivate a spirituality that isn't so focused on rules and regulations and conforming to external standards that we don't allow our hearts to actually be transformed, because this is possible. And I know this is possible because all humans, every human that has ever walked the earth, has this kind of religious compulsion within their heart, we have this religious compulsion to set up rules and regulations for ourselves, to conform externally but not allow our insides to be changed. We all have this compulsion. This happens both in highly formulaic or formal uh, religious systems, and it, it happens in the le- the, le- the less formal religious systems as well. It happens in uh, Catholicism and Orthodoxy within the Christian context, and it happens in the more free church ex- expressions of Faith, the more Protestant expressions of faith, like, uh, like Baptists or Pentecostals or all of those types of people. It happens in both settings that we can, we can begin to draw rules and regulations that are about external conformity and not about the condition of one's heart. When uh, I, some of you might be old enough in this place, if you grew up in the tradition that our church is in, which is the Pentecostal tradition, you might remember when shorts were not allowed, Right? when shorts were not allowed anywhere. My mom had a friend in high school, and he played basketball. He was a really good basketball player, and his dad would not come watch him play basketball because he was wearing shorts, right? It's true. In some sense, it doesn't matter what tradition we come from. We're always trying to build up rules and regulations to kind of add on to, uh, to, to, add on to our faith, aren't we? We're always attempting to do this. Now, I'm not saying that ritual isn't good, because it can be. It can help shape our hearts. And I'm not saying some religious activity isn't good, because it can help uh, form us in a certain direction. But when it becomes an end in itself, it becomes a problem. Does this make sense? In, a, in uh, two weeks, we're going to have an Ash Wednesday service. And you might say, Ash Wednesday, that sounds like a strange thing for you to do. And I, I I love those types of services. I think they're really, they're really rich and full and meaningful. But we don't go to this service because by going to this service, we are good Christians, right? We go to this service because by, uh, by attending to certain practices, by reading our Bibles regularly, by doing these types of things, we can actually help uh, form our hearts in a specific direction. Does this make sense? And so, by so doing, we become the type of people that have hearts that are a certain way, rather than seeing those things, like attending a service or praying at a certain time every morning, as an end in itself. So, this is the way, uh, this is one way to put it, and I think we have this on the screen. Disciples of Jesus are to ground their moral opinions and overall way of life in the Bible, reading all of the Bible as Jesus did in a way that emphasizes God's grace, the moral heart of the Old Testament law, the content of righteousness as works of justice, mercy, and love, knowing that this is only possible if we allow our hearts to be transformed by God's love and by His grace. We are to ground our lives in the Bible, but we are to know that it it is only possible to ground our lives in the Bible, our actions and our morality in what the Scriptures teach, so long as we allow our hearts to be transformed by God's love and by God's grace. This is what it's all about. The scholar Dallas Willard says this, people sometimes uh, dismiss the importance of hearing God by saying that if you just do everything God commanded, you are doing God's will, but you could do all that God explicitly commands and still not be the person God would have you to be An obsession merely with doing all God's commands may be the right thing uh, that rules out being the kind of person that he calls you to be. Uh, The watchword of the worthy servant is not mere obedience, but love, for which uh, appropriate obedience naturally flows. There is some good in the attitude of doing what we are told to do by God, which amounts to the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees but this severely limits spiritual growth. A life of free-hearted collaboration with Jesus and his friends in the kingdom of God surpasses that righteousness. So what surpasses the righteousness of the Pharisees? And this is our last point. The thing that surpasses the righteousness of the Pharisees is free-hearted participation in the kingdom of God. So this morning, the question I have for you is, is your heart free? Or maybe a better way of putting it is, are you hiding behind anything? Is there any religious artifice? Is there any way that you have acted in order to conform into a religious community? Is there, and this, and when I say religious community, I don't just mean people who are in this church and are followers of Jesus. I also mean there's all types of religion in the world, and there, and very often it can be a religion of your workplace or a religion of, uh, of the place or of your peer group. There, there are ways of acting and being that we hide behind, aren't there? There are cultural ways of understanding ourselves and who we are that we can hide behind in such a way as that we don't allow our hearts to be transformed. But what Jesus wants from us, and the reason he kind of deconstructs the Old Testament and what righteousness means in the way that he does is because what he wants from all of us is not religious obligation, but is free-hearted, willful participation with his kingdom in the world. This is what Jesus wants. And so the question that still remains, is your heart free to participate with Jesus or is it bound up with all kinds of other stuff? Have you been hiding behind some religious artifice that has actually not allowed your heart to soar and to freely participate with Jesus and with his kingdom? This is the question we all have to wrestle with. And this is the question that Jesus is asking in this passage on the Sermon on the Mount. How do we get to your heart? How does Jesus get to your heart? And the way that Jesus gets to your heart is by bringing abundant, never running out love and grace. And some of us in this place this morning have been hiding behind artifice, have been hiding behind religious observance, have been hiding behind cultural Christianity even as a means of identifying or setting out who we are and what, what makes us who we are. And it, it has defined my identity, but I haven't actually allowed the love and grace of Jesus to penetrate my heart in a, a significant way that would transform me into a person who would want to freely participate in the kingdom of God. We haven't done that. And to be honest with you, it's not a one-time thing. It's probably something we all have to battle all the time. This idea that to participate with God, to live within to His kingdom, to fight the, the kind of pull of religion is something we always have to be fighting against, I would argue, especially for those of us who have been serving Jesus for longer periods of time. Because the longer you do that, the more you kind of wear the groove of the Christian faith, and you just kind of get comfortable with that groove. Does this make sense? And so this morning, I want to pray for us. I want to pray for us. I want to pray for us as a community, and I want to pray for you individually. And what, and what, I, what I want as I pray is just for you in this moment to search your heart and to ask yourself, have have I been depending on cultural Christianity? Have I been depending on religious form? Have I been depending on all kinds of things? And my heart has been bound up there, and I haven't actually allowed the grace and mercy of God to transform me in certain areas, that maybe I've allowed those things to uh, make my heart a little cold. And this morning, I believe that the Holy Spirit wants to come and wake you up, wants to open up your heart a little bit, and, and help you to see that it is not conformity to religious systems. It is not, it is not, uh, it is not the religion of uh, your parents or grandparents that uh, makes you a Christian. It is rather, it is rather your free hearted participation with what, what, with, with what God, wow, with what God wants to do in and through your life. That's what it is. So let's pray. Father, we love you. And we ask that this morning as we um, look at your scriptures, as we open the scriptures and we hear what Jesus would have to say to us today, that you would help each of us to be people who don't rely on cultural Christianity, who don't rely on uh, tr- the tradition that we were raised in, that don't rely on um, just external compliance, God, but rather that we allow our hearts to be vulnerable before the love of God today, that we would see and know that you are a God who will settle for nothing less than the core of our being, that you will settle for nothing less than our hearts. And so this morning, God, for those of us in this place who might be, um, who might be bound up, who might feel the corners of our hearts that we haven't uh, relented or given to you, God, I pray for those people that they could lay aside the things that they've been hiding behind, that they could come into the light of the goodness of the gospel, of the kingdom of God, and that they could find hope, restoration, and healing in that place, and that your life and light would guide them and rule their heart. And this morning, I pray for us as a community, as a church, God, that as we embark on just the journey of being a church, of being Christians, that you would help us to not uh, depend on ritual, to not depend on religion as, as an external force to help make us conform, but rather, God, that as we carry out uh, concrete practices like receiving communion and like attending church and like reading the scriptures, that we would see these things not as external practices that we need to do to conform, but rather uh, spiritual disciplines that help to transform our hearts. Father, Uh, we give our lives and our hearts over to you this morning. Would you be in, around, and through everything we do? Transform and change us. We pray it all in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen. So, if you're married in this place, I have one thing to say to you. We would love you to be at our Enriched Gathering in two weeks, all right? So, if you've signed up for that already, Ashley has your books out there, and if you have not signed up, whether you're whether you've talked to your spouse about it or not, this is, we're going to get this marriage seminar off on a good foot, uh, go, uh, go sign up. It's going to be a really transformative week, all right? Agreed, married people? Uh, this whole section, just don't listen to me. <laughs> just leave, all right? Go today, go, to, go today in the grace and in the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ.